So this is week one uh, of a class that I have taught once before uh, called Being Human, um, which I've subtitled uh, a Christian, no, 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 a course in biblical anthropology or Christian ethics as good news. So let me give you a little bit of the background of what this course is and, and, and why we teach it. Um, the background to this is that a few years ago, so every summer for a long time, we have done a series of hot topics. Um, this is only a partial list, but we've talked about things like technology and work and rest and our money. We talked about gender, sexuality, politics, culture. Uh, we've also talked about science. We've talked about a whole, a whole bunch of different, um, you know, conversations, controversial things that are already being talked about in the church. And the elders and the pastors felt it was important to, um, you know, have the church actually be speaking into some of these things. Um, a couple years ago, uh, as we as we were looking at these topics, it, it occurred to me, um, or to some of us, that a lot of these questions, and in particular the ones that I've listed there, um, really seem to involve or even depend on, center on, um, our understanding of what it means to be a human being. Um, with a lot of facets to that, what it means to be created, uh, what it means to be created in the image of God, um, all these all these different things. Um, and then, even just this past fall, as we were going through the Ten Commandments um, in, in preaching through De Deuteronomy, it occurred to me that if you, if you look at what the last um, seven of the commandments uh, deal with, um, you know, they, they deal with, and so this is, this is commandments four through ten, they deal with our relationship to time and work and rest, keeping the Sabbath, um, honoring our uh, parents, has to do with authority, um, don't murder, has to do with the value of human life, adultery, has to do with sex, don't steal, has to do with our stuff, don't bear false witness, has to do with the truth, um, and then the last one, uh, don't covet, um, you know, sort of generally dealing with contentedness and being content with um, what we have. Um, and again, it occurred to me, these things all revolve around, uh, pertain to what it means to be a human being. And I think I even said in the sermon, you know, one way that you might think of what it means to be a human, and particularly a fallen human, um, is it, it's to be a creature um, whose life revolves around and is driven in many ways by these things, and they're all things with which we have a really dysfunctional relationship. We really don't know how to relate to time and work and rest, and we don't know how to relate to authority, uh, and, and so on, and, and all the rest. So the idea of this class um, is that if, if we think that the Bible, Scripture, God's Word, um, and you know, sort of the systematic theology that has grown out of the biblical tradition. Um, and I will, throughout this class, I'll be trying to, as much as I can, push against the separation of biblical and systematic theology and say those really need to be held together. Um, if we think that out of that tradition there are resources, you know, with which we address each of these topics the way that we do each summer, the idea of this class is to go in the opposite direction and to say, let's start with the theological doctrines, um, the biblical truths 
that tell us what it means to be a human being. And then let's immediately apply those to some of these, to some of these ethical questions. Um, you know, it means that as we go through these, let me give you an overview of, of where we're gonna go. Um, I've, I've revised and expanded this compared to, um, compared to two years ago, um, including today is, is really just giving me an introductory class that I didn't do last time that tries to set up the problem um, and give us a bit of a sense of what's at stake uh, in, in getting this question right. Um, but the things that we're gonna talk about, we're gonna talk about the Trinity. Somehow last time I left out the Trinity. I don't know how I did a class on Christian theology of any kind um, without, without talking about the Trinity. Um, we're gonna talk about the incarnation. We're gonna talk about creation. We're gonna talk about the fact that our chief end uh, is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. The fact that we're made to worship. Um, we're gonna do two weeks then on the image of God. Um, the fact that we are created in the image of God and we'll look in detail at what that means. Um, we will do one, work on, one week on the church and then the last week will be on the doctrine of the resurrection. Um, and you can see as I've gone through this some of the, the issues that I've, that I've paired up with these, these doctrines. Each of these classes um, we are going to go a bit deeper into the actual doctrine than we would normally go, certainly than we would in a sermon. You know, so I think it's important you know, for us to do some hard work and think about what it means that we confess a God who is three in one, or that we confess uh, that Jesus Christ uh, is uh, one person uh, in, with two natures, divine and human. Those are really hard things to get our minds around. Um, but they are rewarding things, and one of the things that I want to demonstrate is that doing some of that hard work gives us resources to tackle some of these ethical questions that we wouldn't have uh, otherwise. That's true today and that's been true historically. There's some interesting stories to tell uh, about how the church came to say what it says, uh, both about God and about, about humanity. Let me... Um, let me just say a little, a little something about sort of methodology. When you talk about ethics, um, so one thing that I, I, when I talk about ethics, I draw often from a, um, uh, a retired professor named Oliver O'Donovan, um, who taught in the UK. I think he finished up at, at Edinburgh before he retired, um, but he's. Um, one of the best, I, I certainly think, um, Christian ethicists or moral theologians, as he would say it, um, of the last century. Um, it's worth reading him if you're interested in political theology. He's got a great book called Desire of the Nations. Um, if you want just more general you know, Christian ethics, uh, something called Resurrection and Moral Order is, is a good place to start. Um, but one of the things that he talks about is that in theology, you talk about, you have dogmatics uh, and you have ethics. And when theologians talk about dogmatics, they actually, they, they manage to use it in a non-pejorative sense. So normally the word dogmatic has this really negative connotation. It means kind of closed-minded, narrow-minded, right? In theology, dogmatics is simply, these are the things that we assert are true on the basis of the biblical record and on the basis of you know, the centuries of Christian tradition, which reflects on biblical texts 
and has built up uh, a theological tra tradition. So, for instance, the Trinity um, belongs in dogmatics. The Incarnation belongs in dogmatics. Creation, and so on. These are things that we assert are true, but most of our lives um, we live uh, trying to answer questions where the answers are not entirely black and white. We have many difficult questions to answer about um, which job to take, uh, about whom to marry, about whether to marry, about whether and when to have children, um, questions about parenting, questions about friendships, questions about other relationships. There's lots of ethical questions that we face um, where what is required is not simply um, true assertions, propositions, but what's required is wisdom, which is a way of applying what is true into the uncertainties of life. Um, and, that's, and that's ethics. Um, and one thing that O'Donovan points out is that if we're going to do ethics as Christians, if we're going to do it biblically, um, we have to pay attention um, not only to the things that the Bible says, not only the conclusions that it draws, but also how it gets there. That the, the way that the Bible reasons through things um, is as important as the conclusions um, that it draws. So this quote here uh, from uh, O'Donovan, a book called Self, World, and Time, he's talking about uh, a place where in the text you get from A to B. So you get from, you know, Jesus is asked about marriage. Uh, and he says, uh, effectively, um, don't get divorced. You know, he, in, in, in pretty firm um, uh, strict terms. Um, so from A to B. Um, and then we have a question from X to Y. I'm married. My marriage is struggling. Um, what should I do? Should I, should I get a divorce? Now, you could just say, well, the Bible says don't get divorced, therefore I don't get divorced. And that would be sort of going straight from just what the Bible says to what I do. Um, and that can be a good thing, by the way. I don't want to say if, if, if that's all you've got, uh, if, if you simply you know that the Bible tells you not to do something, not doing it is a good thing, simply on the basis of the authority of Scripture. But what O'Donovan's talking about here um, in ethics is that it can be just as important to pay attention to why the Bible says what it says. So to pay attention to the fact that with regard to marriage, for instance, and even you know, in Matthew 19 where Jesus is asked about divorce, Scripture is constantly going back to Genesis. It's constantly going back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's constantly going back to um, the assertions that God created humanity um, to be uh, a unity in diversity, that he created humanity male and female, that the two became one flesh. Um, the verse uh, that says that therefore Adam, uh, or sorry, therefore a man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh, that is um, repeated all over the place um, where, where scripture talks about marriage. Um, and so it's worth asking, okay, why is that part of the argument? Uh, why does the Bible keep going back to those truths from the very beginning of our story as humans uh, in order to answer these, these tough questions about what to do today? Um, I won't go further into that now. We will, we will get explicitly into that question um, when we talk about what it means to be made in the image of God and what that means for our relationships. But this is kind of the method that we're following. We don't, we don't, um, we want to pay attention to how the Bible reasons through things and try to apply that 
for the questions that we're asking. So the plan for today, just, just by way of introducing the course and introducing the problem, um, we're going to look at some com competing definitions of what it means to be human and offer some preliminary thoughts about what's at stake uh, in getting this question right. Um, that's pretty much all I want to do today. Let me pause and see if there are any questions at this point. By the way, I am um, recording these, um, and we'll try to get them on the website um, promptly so that, so that if you miss a class, uh, you, can always, you can always catch up. Okay, so I want to talk about four different ways. Um, when you go out and ask, what does it mean to be human? Um, and, and broadly speaking, I mean, we'll be looking at things that come from both Christian and non-Christian sources here. Um, ways of being, of being human, and they fall into four categories. Um, there are ways of defining what it means to be human in terms of our capacities. Um, there are functional ways, um, in other words, you know, ways of, of saying that, well, to be human means to, um, uh, means to do certain things or to um, be called to do certain things. Um, there are relational ways of defining what it means to be human. Um, and then the last one is one that I'm calling covenant. Um, and by calling, by calling it covenant, you almost get the sense I'm, I'm prejudicing the whole thing towards that last, you know. Um, I'm actually not going to say that the other three are completely wrong. I'm going to say that the other three are incomplete. Um, that certainly any one of them by themselves is, can, can, be, can be dangerous, and we'll talk about why that is. Um, but even that the three together, capacity, function, and relationship, um, for a long time I, I think I thought of the way the Bible uh, defined what it means to be human in terms of sort of a combination of those things and have, have recently been um, studying this, this, this more and, and feel like there's a, an element missing there, which, which I think gets caught up in the notion of, of covenant. So let's work through these, uh, through these things. I'm going to spend most of my time, by the way, on capacity and function. Um, the, the relationship section is going to be a little, a little shorter. So... It's, it's very common to say what it means to be human is to have certain capacities, um, to uh, be possessed of rationality, uh, to be creative, to be intelligent. Um, language is a big one. So here's uh, Steven Pinker. He's a um, psychologist over at, at Harvard um, who has expanded well beyond the realm of, of psychology and really become one of our preeminent um, public intellectuals. Um, uh, his, his latest book is, is coming out uh, real soon, I think. I just saw excerpts of it in a couple of newspapers. Um, and it's a, it's a whole defense of the Enlightenment project. So he's, he's getting outside the bounds of psychology. Um, but this is one of his earlier books, um, you know, from, from his, uh, uh, his, his, his specialty in um, uh, cognitive science, uh, language, uh, linguistics, and, uh, and, and psychology. It's called the language instinct. Um, and, you know, he is, he is one of those who would say that what makes humans unique, what really sets them apart from the rest of the animal kingdom, um, is language. 
um, not just not just communication, you know, but this very flexible system uh, within which uh, meaning uh, can be conveyed uh, from one member of the, spe the species to the other. And this whole book is is about how um, you know spoken language in particular uh, is uh, is is so universal and so um, it's almost impossible to suppress. Um, you know, humans as they develop, you know, from childhood, will develop some form of language. Um, you know, even when they're kept away from um, adults uh, and, and, and away from the resources that they usually use to uh, to develop that. Um, so for him, this is this is central to what it is to be a human being. So one thing he says in this in this book, he says, in in nature's talent show, we are simply a species of primate with our own act, a knack for communicating information about who did what to whom by modulating the sounds we make when we exhale. Um, which is an interesting way of thinking about what, what language is. Um, this, however, this is not only something that you hear. The, the, idea that, um, the idea that being human is a matter of some capacity, so Pinker is focusing on language. But more broadly speaking, um, the idea that to be human is, is to have some sort of capacity uh, you know, including rationality and creativity and so on, that's not only something that you hear from, uh, from secular sources, from non-Christian sources. Um, this actually has a long tradition in, in Christianity as well. Um, so just some examples of this. Um, Augustine, uh, commenting on Genesis, uh, says man's excellence consists in the fact that God made him to his own image by giving him an intellectual soul, which raises him above the beast of the field. And then, and then later in a letter, he said God made humanity after his own image, not as regards the possession of a body and of mortal life, but as regards the rational mind, with the power of knowing God, and with the superiority as compared with all irrational creatures, which the possession of reason implies. Um, Thomas Aquinas later says, to be the image of God belongs to the mind only. Um, in other words, the, you know, the image of God, what it is that sets humanity apart, um, is something that you find uh, in the mind. Um, it's, it's, our, it's our intellect, it's our rationality that, uh, that makes us human. Um, this makes its way into the reform tradition as well. Um, John Calvin wrote, the image of God extends to everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of all other species of animals. And though the primary seat of the divine image was in the mind and the heart, or in the soul and its powers, there was no part even of the body in which some rays of glory did not shine. So he's softening the position somewhat. He's saying the image of God can also be found even in the body. Um, but notice that his focus is on everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of all other species of animals. Um, so it's capacities. It's the fact that in some ways humanity exceeds uh, other animals uh, in terms of what they can do, in terms of what they are. And you know, his, his, his main focus, the primary seat, uh, is the mind uh, and the heart. Um, one more, John Owen uh, says, we were created in the image of God. Whatever was good or comely in us was a part of that image, especially the ornaments of our minds, the perfections of our souls. These things had in them a resemblance of and a correspondency unto some excellencies in God. Um, again, a softer, you know, he's not saying that it's only the mind exclusively, um, but he is focused uh, on, 
intellectual capacity uh, that, that humans have. Um, okay, so this is, this is the point at which, you know, when I've, when I've made this argument before, um, this can be a controversial, ones among, a controversial one among Christians. Um, because, you know, our own tradition um, does tend to think of humanity in this way. Um, and I, in general, am really, whenever anyone comes along and says, okay, 1900 years of Christian tradition says X, but we think Y, like I get very, very nervous and suspicious, but that's kind of what I'm gonna say um, this, this morning. Um, not so much that this is wrong, but that it's incomplete. Um, so before I go on here, let me, just, let me just ask you to think about this a little bit. What, what could be wrong? What could be problematic? Um, about a definition of humanity that focuses on capacities in this way. Yeah, Catherine. The large number of people who want to recognize the privacy of humans who don't exercise capacities and use them for evil. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the nub of it. That's the central, the, the, the central one. That, that if you define humanity as uh, you know, creatures that have certain capacities, then what do we do with humans who don't have those capacities? Um. And wouldn't you say that artificial intelligence is one of the Yes, yes, that's coming at it from the, other, from the other side. If you identify a capacity and say that's human, what happens when artificial intelligence can do that? That's, that's actually another good, yeah. Um, right, so, you know, and, and, and to take Catherine's example first, um, you can think of all kinds of examples of people, uh, persons, you know, who intuitively, legitimately, in every way we want to recognize as human beings, um, who for various reasons don't have um, whatever capacity it is that you would identify, whether it's intellect, creativity, language, whatever it is. Lara? Um, you know, but there are people who um, will suffer traumatic brain injury. Um, there are people who, as they age, will lose certain capacities. Um, all of us, at one point in our lives, were too young uh, to exhibit just about any of these capacities um, that we would that we would uh, that we would identify. Um, and yet, we were human. We were persons. We were human beings. Um, so what I'm, gonna, what I'm gonna end up arguing uh, here is, is that the problem is not in saying that these capacities set humans apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, I think that's true. Um, the problem is going to be in identifying the image of God, identifying humanity with those capacities in a way that defines some people out uh, of humanity. And, and that defines some non-human <laughs> intelligences in. Um, the idea is gonna be these capacities are things that God gave us in service to being made in the image of God, in service to what it, what it means to be human. But, but what it actually means to be human is gonna have to be a richer, uh, a richer concept um, than, than this. Um, there are some pretty, I did, um, there are some pretty lousy examples of how we have managed to define people out 
um, of humanity historically. Um, and I think it's important to, to focus not just on the ones that might come to mind first, like Nazi Germany, but to, to realize that we, Americans, um, liberal, enlightened uh, Americans, um, have, have been guilty of this kind of thing. So um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Um, in 1927, I mean, this is, this is, a, guy who, he, this is a, a guy who is thought of as being you know, in the vanguard um, of, of um, the liberal enlightenment project in the 20th century. Um, and he wrote the majority opinion in this uh, Supreme Court case, um, Buck versus Bell, you know, in which the state of Virginia had a law on its books that allowed um, for the forcible sterilization um, of people who were deemed to be mentally incompetent uh, in, in, in some way. Um, and he wrote the majority opinion, and it was an eight to one majority uh, with William Taft as the, as the Chief Justice uh, and Louis Brandeis also joining the majority. Um, he wrote the majority opinion upholding that law um, and, and saying that in particular this, this woman, Carrie, who's the younger one uh, on, the, on the left there, um, could be forcibly sterilized um, because her mother's IQ was low, her IQ was low. Um, she she had, had already had a child um, who had a low IQ. And he, he ended his opinion with this statement, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Um, I mean, this is, this, is, this is kind of chilling, you know, to look at now. Um, but this is what was happening, you know, here in America. Um, you, can, you can go and look up. There's a, a, a long article um, that got published in, uh, I think, the Harvard Crimson um, about the history of the role that Harvard and people associated with Harvard um, played in the American eugenics movement in the early, in the early 20th century. Um, so the stakes are pretty high. We get this wrong. Um, we, we certainly are able, we humans are able to define people out of humanity um, when we start thinking of humanity in terms of, uh, of, in terms of capacities. Um, this is, if you want more examples of this, um, uh, this is not an easy book to read. Um, David Livingstone Smith is a philosopher who's written a book called Less Than Human, um, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. Um, that, yes, we'll give you uh, many more examples um, of, of this. Um, it's important to note, uh, actually, Erin, if she's still here, Erin um, um, sent me an, an article uh, that was actually a, a review of this book and some others um, that made the important point that this isn't to say that all acts of violence follow from dehumanization. Um, there are many acts of violence which are heinous precisely because you know that you're exercising power over someone who is human. Um, it is to say, though, um, that uh, that can be very dangerous uh, for us to, to define uh, humanity in terms of some kind of, of, a, of a capacity. Um, O'Donovan, again, uh, writing in the, in the 80s, he gave some lectures um, this was at the time that um, uh, artificial reproductive technology was, was just getting its start, um, so in vitro fertilization. And, and he gave a series of lectures um, just about, so how should Christians think about this? And he devoted an entire lecture to, like, so how do you, how do you determine what's a person? How do you determine uh, who, a, who a human being is? Um, 
And you know, he, he, he just he pointed out these kinds of problems with any way of defining humanity in terms of something that you could observe or test for or measure. So he talked about you know, I mean, brain activity, like anything like that. Um, he said, you're gonna end up defining you know, some human beings out of humanity um, if you do this. And his, his conclusion at the end was to say that for Christians, um, we may decide whether or not any being manifests personality by testing for it, but we cannot decide in this way whether or not any being is a person. We discern persons only by love, by discovering through interaction and commitment that this human being is irreplaceable. Um, you know, in other words, discerning a human being involves recognizing a human being, and that involves making a commitment to it, uh, to him, to her. Um, and so it's not something that you, you measure uh, or, or test for. We'll have a chance to unpack that um, a bit more um, when we talk about uh, when we talk about the incarnation, because, as O'Donovan um, describes in in this book, it turns out that the language that Christians have developed for saying what a person is um, and how it's different from a set of capacities that develops in the course of wrestling through the doctrine of the incarnation because it's when Christians realize that they somehow have to be able to talk about this person uh, who's not definable in terms of one set of characteristics because he's fully human, so he's got uh, human characteristics, but that doesn't define the person. And he's fully divine, so he's got divine characteristics, but that won't fully define the person. Somehow you've gotta be able to talk about this person in a way that doesn't depend simply on a set of characteristics. Um, and the language that develops ends up pointing us in the direction of saying, you know, a person is a someone who rather than a something that. Um, a person is um, a history, not just an object. Um, so we'll get to unpack that uh, quite a bit more in a, in a few weeks here. So that's, um, that's capacity. Uh, that's the next about functional definitions. Are there any questions about? So, so, oh yeah, Tim. So with the verse in, what is it, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, do you have a schedule? And this is what would best fit within that category? Um, let me come back to that. That's, yeah, that's a, that's in summary of it. Well, yes. Sorry? Just in the raw sense of capacity. I think I heard that. Yeah, let me think about that. Actually, I, had, I, I think you're asking a different question than I thought you were. I want to think about that. So, yeah. But we'll get to come back to that in a couple weeks, <coughs> if, not, if not today. Yeah. Um, so functional definitions of, of humanity um, define humanity in terms of what humans do or in terms of what they should do, in terms of what they're made to do. Um, now, there's some advantage uh, to defining humans um, in terms of, in terms of uh, function, in terms of um, some kind of task or vocation uh, is, is the term that, uh, that gets used uh, often. Um, and that is, is that it provides a nice response um, to a whole tradition of late modern uh, moral philosophy that says, you know, there's really no way 
to ground morality or ethics in any objective way. Because in order to ground morality and ethics in, in, in something objective, you'd have to go from objective factual statements, this is what we can say a human being is, you'd have to be able to infer from what a human being is that a human being ought to do certain things. Um, and folks like Hume and Kant and Kierkegaard all rejected this. They said those are just categorically different kinds of statements. You can't get from is to ought. Um, and so what that left them with was having to come up with some, of the, I mean, thankfully none of them wanted to jettison morality altogether. Uh, I mean, they're all moral philosophers. Um, but they had to come up with other ways of, of grounding morality. So, you know, Kant comes up with the categorical imperative, right, which is something like, you know, make no law for yourself, but you wouldn't want to be a law for everyone all the time. Um, but all these things, you know, because they're explicitly not grounded objectively, therefore they're explicitly subjective. Um, and then in the hands of someone like Nietzsche, everything subjective gets called nothing but a power play. Um, and, 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 and we get into, we, we start, you know, moving in the direction of, um, not really having any standards um, at, at all that we can that we can trust. So it's it would be nice, it would be nice to be able to come back to this idea of wait, is there any objective morality? Is there any way to get from what a human being is to what humans ought to do? And functional definitions of humanity do provide that. So um, Alistair McIntyre, um, in his book um, After Virtue, um, makes this case. So he points out some really obvious counterexamples uh, to the principle, you know, no going from is to ought. You know, so one of them is, um, if, if I say that this is a good watch that I'm wearing, you know, that's shorthand for saying this watch functions the way a watch is supposed to function. It tells time well, right? Um, it does what a watch ought to do. And the reason that that works um, is because what a watch is supposed to do is part of the definition of a watch, right? Without that piece, without, without you know, the piece of the definition of this thing, that this is something that's supposed to tell time, it's just a bunch of plastic and metal that's wrapped around my wrist, right? But because this is something that is supposed to tell time, that's what makes it a watch, that's part of its definition. So it's totally legitimate to say that because this is a watch, it ought to tell time accurately. And I can talk about it being a good watch or a bad watch. Um, and so he says, okay, so what these later moral philosophers, um, Kant, Hume, and Kierkegaard, those guys, what they must be saying, if there's no way to get from is to ought in the realm of morality, then there must not be um, any of these functional concepts um, involved in those, in those claims. And then he says, but wait a minute. Since forever, there's been this one central functional concept at the center of all moral claims, and the functional concept is that of humanity. The idea that humanity, that, that there's such a thing as a good human. There is such a thing as what a human is supposed to do and what a human is not supposed to do. So he says moral arguments within the classical Aristotelian tradition, and he also talks about this going way back even before Aristotle, um, whether in its Greek or medieval versions, involve at least one central functional concept, the concept of man, understood as having an essential nature and an essential purpose or function. 
It's only when man is thought of as an individual prior to and apart from all roles that man ceases to be a functional concept. So in other words, what he's saying is the real move um, that these guys have made is that they've divorced, they've changed the definition of what humanity is. You know, they've, they've, they've divorced um, uh, humanity uh, from the roles that humanity is, is, is supposed to play, um, which effectively throws you into a, a blank slate. Um, So right, so this is so this is McIntyre's argument. Just to say, like it 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 is it is a, a useful thing. It is a way of responding to the no ought from is um, argument, to say, you know, hang on, we have we have always believed um, that there is such a thing as uh, a good human, and a good for human, uh, a, a, a purpose. So um, yeah, Catherine. I think they would say that that's not empirically demonstrable. I think that they would say, well, how do you know that? And, and McIntyre's answer would be, well, you're right. It's not empirical, empirically demonstrable. Um, what we really have here is competing traditions. We have competing ways of thinking about what it means to be human and, and ways of living. And you know, the real, you know, if there's a horse race to be run, it's between you know, try living this way, try living this way and see which one actually makes more sense on its own terms and, and can make sense of the others. That's a big part of his, his project. Yeah. Um, what kind of problems do you think arise? If, if, if this is our depth, if we say, okay, let's, let's talk about vocation. Let's go look at Genesis 1, and let's see God uh, telling uh, humanity, uh, I want you to uh, be fruitful and multiply. I want you to subdue the earth, right? He's giving them a job. Right? And that is going to be central. When we talk about the image of God, that's going to be a big part of it, that this vocation is part of it. Um, but what kind of problems arise if we have an entirely functional, um, vocational definition of what it means to be human? Yeah, Becky. So you're kind of combining the capacity and the functional, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a funny moment where God says, here's what you're supposed to do, and all of a sudden gives me nothing else but that I've done it again. Right. <laughs> So that is actually a question that has been asked. You know, did we lose the image of God in the fall? Um, biblically, we can actually answer that. It, it, it's very nice that we have texts in Genesis 9 uh, and in James 5, I think. Um, both clearly post-fall, 
right? And both of which refer to the image of God, you know, still being present. So Genesis 9 is, is um, the introduction of capital punishment for murder, and the reasoning is because humans are made in the image of God. That's why murder is so serious. Um, James 5 talks about using our tongue to slander people who are made in the image of God. Um, but but that's, that's still something that, that theologians have reflected on um, a lot is... is um, Francis Bacon, for instance, one of the reasons he was a devout Christian and one of the reasons he was so energized about science was that he thought that the fall had affected our minds and science gave us a way of, of doing things in a systematic, objective way that could get around the fall and could actually restore us to being able to do what we were meant to do in terms of ruling the earth. So that idea has been, has been out there. Yeah. What else do you think? James? Yeah, that is, right, you do end up with the same problem as before, that if you're saying, you know, humanity is meant to serve a role, what about those who, who can't? I think Becky was getting at something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, so these are all, yeah, these are all, these are all good ideas. I, 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 I thought of another one, and, and maybe it's just because of the time of year that it is. Um, so the, the one I thought of, you know, if we, if we define humanity in terms of what we're meant to do, our focus very subtly shifts from getting the right out, uh, sorry, from being the kinds of people we're supposed to be to getting the right outcomes, you know, to achieving what it is that we're supposed to do uh, and, and what we're supposed to achieve. And, and something really interesting happens here. Um, I noticed this year um, a lot of the articles, so every year, you know, at the end of the year, there's lots of articles about New Year's resolutions, right? And this year, a lot of them made the same basic argument, which was, if you want to keep your resolutions, forget willpower, right? That's never going to work. Like, you cannot keep your resolutions. What you need is a system. Some of them use the word, you need a life hack, right? You need to be able to figure out. So, and, and lots of them quoted these two books, uh, The Power of Habit uh, by Charles Duhigg. I actually don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, and, and the other one is, is When by Daniel Pink. Uh, that one's all about how, you know, over the course of the day, you, you know, you kind of crest in intellectual alertness, uh, and you're really productive between like 10 and 11 a.m., and then you're completely unproductive after 2. Um, and so it just like, think about what you do when you do it. Um, but it's all about, you know, kind of hacking the system, like, to get the outcomes that you want. Um, this was the theme of, of lots of these articles this year. I, I think the reason that's happening now, um, there's been this movement. So w when I was in grad school uh, in the 2000s, um, behavioral economists were talking a lot about something called a nudge, um, which now has made its way into the popular consciousness. Um, Richard Thaler is an economist who won the Nobel Prize for this, and, and Cass Sunstein is a Harvard law professor who had a position in the, in the Obama administration. Um, and the idea of a, of a nudge, it's a life hack. It's a big systemic life hack, like for society. Um, the classic example of what a nudge is um, has to do with uh, your 401k, right? So if you show up for work on the first day and you're told, okay, uh, you know, here at this company we have a 
401k, there's a retirement plan. Um, if you're told the, the default right now um, is that 5% of your paycheck is going to go into this 401k, um, but you have the freedom to opt out of that. You can, you, can uncheck, you can check the box and say, no, 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 I'll just leave it all in my paycheck. I want all of it. Um, that's one way of framing the question. The other way to frame the same question would be to say the default is that zero is going into your 401k. But you have the option to opt in. You can check the box and we'll take 5% of your paycheck and put it into your 401k. We know um, systematically, overwhelmingly, if you frame the question in the first way where the default is the 5%, people will save more than if you frame it in the second way, even though you haven't coerced them to do anything. There's no requirement. You know, all they have to do is to check a box or not check a box, right? So you would think, right, economists, you know, working on the, the, the old, you know, rational actor, you know, kind of model would say it just shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter how you frame this question. The outcome should be the same. But we know that's not true. We know that people save more. We also know from surveys that people don't save nearly as much as they want to. They don't save nearly as much as they plan to. If you ask them how much do you intend to save over the next five years and then look at what they actually do, we always come up short, right, again and again. So the idea is, okay, let's choose the default where it's 5%, and by doing that, we're helping people make the choice they want to make, right? So in a sense, we're making them more free. We're, 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 we're helping them make the, cho the choice that they want to make. Um, Thaler, when I first heard him introduce this idea, um, he referred to this as, um, it was either paternalistic libertarianism or libertarian paternalism. I can never remember which came first. Either way, it wasn't nearly as catchy as a nudge um, and sounded kind of creepy. Um, but this was the idea that, you know, policymakers have power. And this is his basic argument. Policymakers have power. Um, and you got to frame the question somehow, right? You, you're going to give people a default option, or maybe you're not going to tell them about the 401k. That's still framing the question just by hiding it. Um, why not choose the framing of the question that helps people make the choice that they, that they want to make? And on its face, that's, that by itself seems fine. Um, the problem becomes when we start to rely on these nudges uh, solely, only, to get the outcomes that we want. Um, Jeremy Waldron wrote a review of this book um, in, the, in the New York Review of Books. Um, I have to confess, by the way, that when I first became aware of this idea, you know, because I had come out of a, a, an economics program and had been hearing about this stuff, um, I didn't really think all this was all that objectionable. You know, I, I, I kind of thought, yeah, it's a pretty argu good argument. Why not just help people make the choice they want to make? I remember talking about this with Leanne, and she was the one who was just saying, yeah, I, I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something creepy. You know, like, <laughs> we should not be relying on this stuff. Well, Jeremy Waldron, I think, put his finger on it. Um, at the end of this review of the book, he says, I, I appreciate the good-hearted and intelligent efforts of choice architects. That's what he calls the policymakers, um, such as Sunstein, to make my autonomous life a little better. I wish, though, that I could be made a better chooser rather than having someone on high take advantage, even for my own benefit, of my current thoughtlessness and my shabby intuitions. Um, and that, 
it seems fine for there to be policymakers who frame the question, who try to frame it in a wise way. The problem is when our society decides that that's enough, that that's all we need to do, and that no one needs to play the role of helping people to actually become better choosers. Um, in other words, when all of our focus is simply on getting the right outcome, a higher savings rate, and no one is saying, but who's going to help us actually become wiser? Um, who's going to help us resist the temptation to spend beyond our means? Uh, who's actually going to make us the kinds of people that can make these, these choices? Um, an alternative concept to the nudge is the jig. Um, you guys know what a jig is? Okay, jig is a dance. But how about, how about, how about in craftsmanship? So, this is a jig. Um, that is a jig. This is a still shot of a YouTube video uh, of my brother-in-law. You can find this video. I recommend that you do. Search uh, NPR Science Friday Bamboo Bikes. Um, this, is, this, is, this is my brother-in-law, um, who today makes really beautiful furniture. Uh, an earlier uh, attempt of his to make a go of, uh, of, of, um, uh, of making a living building bamboo bikes. And a jig is just this apparatus that he's got to make sure that every time he connects the seat tube and the down tube, he gets the angle the same way every single time, right? So it's just, it's just something that just constrains what you do uh, to get it right uh, every single time. Here he's building, I don't know if he's working on it. It's possible that he's building this bike, um, which eventually is this bike, which is my bike. This is like my one concession to materialism. I don't, I don't pay too much attention to like the car I drive or, or the clothes I wear, but I like this bike. <laughs> um, Matt, Matt Crawford um, wrote a book-length response to um, the concept of, of nudges. Um, he says, so here's, here's the definition of a jig. Um, it's a device or procedure that guides repeated action by constraining the environment in such a way as to make the action go smoothly, the same each time without having to think about it. A jig re reduces the degrees of freedom that are afforded by the environment. The big difference between a jig and a nudge is that a jig is something that you set up for yourself. You put thought into, how do I want this to go every time? Um, and now, how am I going to constrain myself? Um, you can imagine this working not only at the level of the individual, but at the level of the family, or the level of the church, or the level of any number of groups. You know, how are we going to constrain ourselves how are the older and wiser among us going to constrain those who are younger? Um, you know, to help them build up character, to actually help them become better choosers, actually become wiser. Um, Crawford says, character is a kind of jig that's built up through habit, becoming a reliable pattern of responses to a variety of situations. If I fail to, act, to opt out of a 401k, have I really acted? Have I done something? such as facing down temptation that helps to wear the groove of habit into my character? Probably not. Um, you know, William James somewhere says, um, character really isn't anything other than the determination of incident, and incident is really nothing but the revelation of character. Um, you know, who you are uh, comes out, uh, or, you know, a good tree bears good fruit. That's another way of putting that. Um, so, yeah, so we do have this, we do have this tendency, what I'm, what I'm arguing, 
um, you know, if we're going to define what it means to be human uh, simply in terms of um, what it is that we need to do rather than paying attention to who we are, um, then we are susceptible to this temptation um, to just focus on the outcomes um, and to seek you know, the most expedient, the most convenient, um, uh, the most automated uh, way of getting the outcomes that we want um, rather than uh, paying attention to, um, to who we are, um, paying attention to the kinds of choices that we actually make and whether we're developing wisdom, um, you know, whether, to use a theological term, uh, whether we're being sanctified. Um, yeah, Rosemary. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of a lot of Crawford's books, uh, book, um, a lot of the the actual examples of jigs, you know, that he recommends. Or there was an entire issue of, I have it with me. I do. Um, Comment magazine. I like this journal. Um, they did an entire issue responding to the nudge thing. That's it's called cultural jigs. Um, this talks about how. Um, the Sabbath is a jig. Uh, it talks about how you know weekly attendance of corporate worship is a jig. Prayer is a jig. Marriage is a jig. Um, marriage is a big way of reducing the degrees of freedom in your life. Um, very important to you know. Sorry, but that's the, that is actually the point of a jig. That's a great point. The whole point of a jig is that you reduce some degrees of freedom in order to be free. What you actually in order to be free to do what you want to do, you know, so, so he couldn't, sorry, I went, went too far, he couldn't make that bite <coughs> without that jig. Yes, I agree. My comment is, is I started with one, I made it with six, so uh, Oh, <laughs> yes. Other degrees of freedom. Um. Let me move on. We're almost out of time. Like I said, I'm, I wasn't going to spend very much time on relationships um, at this point because we'll, we'll come back to it. Just to say, you know, it, it has been a, a proposal to say that um, maybe the way to define uh, humanity is in terms of our relational capacities. Uh, there's that word capacities again, but, you know, focusing specifically on relationships. Um, this, is, this is Roz Bacard. Um, she's a professor at the MIT Media Lab and has founded the entire field of affective computing, which is getting computers and artificial intelligence to respond to and even convey uh, human emotion. And so to the point that you made earlier, Tim, about like artificial intelligence can do some pretty amazing stuff. Um, you know, she, she is, um, she's also a Christian and, and she led a discussion I went to recently, you know, in which she the discussion was all about like how exactly do we distinguish between humans and artificial intelligence when we're getting to the point where we can actually have relationships with artificial intelligence. Um, you know, what does that, what does that mean? Um, I just throw that out there as a, a question for the moment. Um, but it is a question that leads to 
this last concept that I want to introduce. Um, because um, there's, a, there's a theologian named Stephen Williams who's working on um, transhumanism, um, you know, which is both from one angle, you know, the drive to extend human longevity towards infinity, or from another angle, uh, you know, to figure out how to like upload our consciences to consciences to um, uh, to a computer, um, and he 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 pointed out, you know, on this question of what it means to be human, he said, you know, the three major ways that theologians uh, and others have talked about what it means to be human is capacity, function, and relationship, and AI robots are being demonstrated to be able to fill any of those three roles. Uh, they have fantastic capacities, you know, certainly for storing and processing some <coughs> kinds of information. Um, we design them to play all kinds of functions, and more and more, it's possible to in some way relate to or get relational goods uh, from, uh, from, from AI. Um, so all three of those things together don't, don't seem to get at what, and what he pointed out was, and this is why I get to Covenant, he said what you never hear, and what is almost inconceivable to hear, you never hear anything about AI uh, having any concept of righteousness. Um, there's, no, there's no notion of a robot um, having you know, a right standing with its maker. Um, and what he, what, he, what he pointed out was that you know, these three things taken together are not gonna deliver a concept of what it means to be human um, because they simply lack direction. Um, they lack an orientation. They lack, uh, you know, taken on their own. Um, they don't point us at our, at our proper end. Um, an example of this came up last week at the, at the retreat. Um, uh, Austin was, was, he titled his whole series uh, Curiosity in an Age of Distress, and he tried to argue that uh, we need more curiosity. We need to be, uh, you know, we need more willingness uh, to be intellectually humble, uh, to ask questions, to ask hard questions. And somebody in our discussion group pointed out that seems incomplete. Um, like just saying that we need to be more curious doesn't seem like a solution because after all, uh, one way of thinking about the fall uh, is that Adam and Eve exercised a curiosity that they shouldn't have exercised. Um, so it, it, it turns out that you know, in, our, in our tradition is this um, important distinction between pure curiosity, you know, just having that open mind and, and asking question after question um, without any direction, and what the tr tradition is referred to as studiousness, which does not mean book learning. It doesn't mean just studying. Um, what it means is, yes, being intellectually humble uh, and, and open-minded, but doing so under the submission you know, to a particular teacher, like putting yourself in an, in an apprenticeship role uh, to someone who's going to help guide you. Uh, and so it's directed. Um, it, has a, it has a direction to it. Um, John Webster has a, an essay on this called Curiosity where he says, curiosity is checked and studiousness is promoted when the intellect is directed to the proper ends of contemplation and edification. Um, so, 
what I'm going to try to argue over the course of this whole class, you know, as we look at each of these doctrines and talk about each of these ethical questions, um, you know, this is going to be, you know, an overarching concept that to be human, you know, yes is to have certain capacities, yes is to be called uh, to a certain vocation, uh, yes is to be called into relationship uh, with God and with one another. Um, but it gets bound together uh, by the fact that we are in covenant relationship uh, to our God. Um, and that there's a concept of righteousness. Um, when God called Abraham into covenant, uh, he said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And that kind of language gets repeated uh, a lot in scripture. Um, Micah, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk um, humbly with your God. And of course for us, um, oh, a couple more. Uh, from, the, from the Psalms, um, talking about the, the notion of, of walking. Um, but uh, for us, since we're about out of time here, um, you know, the key thing for us, of course, is, is, is going to be to, to connect this back uh, to, to the gospel um, and to what God has done for us, so that just like Paul, you know, urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, but grounds that in a therefore, um, this is Ephesians 4, and so you've got to go back and read Ephesians 1 to 3 and see what Paul has said that God has done for us. Um, that he sums up here at the end of Ephesians 3, um, praying simply that his readers would know God, um, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, so this, 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 this covenantal notion that binds these things together is something we're going we're gonna to work out um, as we go through these different, these different topics. Um, we, are, we are out of time. Uh, I will stick around and I can, I can take questions individually here, but uh, let, me, let me pray so we can go. Um, Father in heaven, we are grateful that you uh, call us into your presence each week. Uh, we're grateful that you uh, call us to worship you uh, and that you call us to do so together. Um, we don't want to take any of that for granted. And so as we uh, reflect on the things that we're thinking about, uh, and I pray that as we keep thinking about these things over these, uh, uh, over these next couple months, um, Father, I pray that we uh, would be drawn uh, to an increasing uh, deep knowledge of you um, and a love for one another. I pray that you work these things into our hearts uh, through your word uh, and sacrament. I pray this in your name. Amen.